Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how's it going today? It's going fantastic today, Tim. I hope everyone listening is having a wonderful day. But the question of the day is, how are you? I am doing so well. Thank you very much for asking. I really You're appreciate welcome. it. <laughs> and uh, and Lance, I'm, I'm doing especially well because we have one of my very favorite guests on the show. Uh, her name is Maureen Boyle. She is an amazing author. She's local, too, to this area, and she's written a couple of books. This is the second time we've had her on. Uh, this is her second book. This one is called The Ghost, The Murder of Police Chief Greg Adams and the Hunt for His Killer. It was released in June of 2021, and it is a wonderful book, Lance, and I highly recommend this to anyone listening to this, and there's links in the show notes. I love speaking with Maureen. Yeah, agreed. Not much more I can say about that. Uh, really raving about the style of her writing. Anyone who's into true crime will get right into this book. I mean, uh, I think you might have read it or or you listened to it on Audible. I definitely listened to it on Audible, and I made the mistake, and I kind of joke about it. I made the mistake of listening to it at like 1.2 speed. And the first few pages of this book, the first chapter, just gets you right into it like she just engages you immediately there's this anxiety this sense of urgency she gets you right in the action her writing style comes together like a wonderful piece of noir like this beautiful like cop noir but it's a true story and it's tragic and it's bonkers yeah very fact-based um it's it, the pace is is very quick in in her writing um it, it just explains the story gives very little background on her and, uh, you know, I think some people really like that. Um, mm. And the, bo the book just flies by, and I know you're going to love it. So make sure to check it out. There are links in the show notes. It is about Police Chief Greg Adams from Saxonburg, Pennsylvania, and he was murdered in 1980. And uh, the case is very twisty, and the book is as well. And I, I just think you're, you're going to find it fascinating. It's a fascinating story. And because we just raved about the audio version of this book on Audible, shout out to Tom Lennon, who is the narrator. He really takes Maureen's words and puts it into that context and creates that pace that was intended in her writing. So Tom Lennon, great job wherever you are. And make sure to check out Maureen's site at MaureenBoyleWriter.com. And there are links in the show notes to her website and her books on Amazon. All right, thanks, everybody. Please follow us on social media at Crawlspace Pod or Crawlspace Podcast. We're going to play a quick commercial break here, and we'll be right back with Maureen Boyle. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s? Or what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Gold. And we're the hosts of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over, reporting on dangerous people and places. 
And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there, we've seen it, and we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field, and we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the podcast, Maureen Boyle. How are you today, Maureen? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, absolutely. It's always a pleasure to uh, speak with you. Um, we had you on in, on a previous show for your book, Shallow Graves, um, about the New Bedford Highway serial killer, which really opened up the eyes of a lot of listeners, including Tim and I, um, that that was even a thing. Uh, you you wouldn't even believe how many people reached out to us and said, I live I live two minutes away, and I didn't know that this, was, uh, this actually happened. So um, well done on that. Thank you very much. You know, a part of uh, the case with uh, Shallow Graves is, unfortunately, it happened during the 1980s when there wasn't a lot of social media. Well, there was no social media, so uh, people weren't familiar with the case unless you were right in the middle of it. So I'm hoping right. that more, as many people as possible know about the case. Um, perhaps eventually it'll get solved. Great. And your newest book, The Ghost, um, is about an unsolved murder. And uh, before we get into the story, can you tell us um, why you wrote, uh, why you chose this story? I found it intriguing. Uh, I had just finished uh, Shallow Graves, and I was looking for an, another project, as if I hadn't had enough work to do uh, prior to that. And this case came along, the solution of the case came along. Um, and I'm like, oh, this is interesting uh, because I was familiar with the very beginning, part of the beginning of the case, but not really. In 1984, I had joined the Standard Times down in New Bedford, and eventually I was the police reporter for many, many years. And I was not familiar with this case, which I was absolutely, number one, appalled with myself, but I'm also appalled with everyone else who not telling me there's this unsolved case is fugitive that's wanted out there. Uh, what happened was in 1980, a police chief in Saxonburg, Pennsylvania, uh, stopped the car uh, about a block and a half away from the police station. It was in December, a couple of weeks before Christmas, and pulled them over into a uh, Agaway parking lot. And a fight ensued. And the chief was uh, fatally shot and the killer drove off. They found a driver's license in the snow later on during a search, uh, and it turned out to be an alias that was used by a man named Donald Webb, um, who lived in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Uh, Saxonburg is roughly 10 hours away from uh, Saxonburg. So they, in this case, they knew who the killer was, they thought initially they'd be able to catch him right away, but they didn't. And it took decades before he was finally located. Um, you know, it brought in the FBI. Webb was on the top, one of the top 10 fugitives for quite some time. Uh, the FBI was working on it, Pennsylvania State Police, Massachusetts State Police, and no one could catch him. And what was also very interesting about the case is that 
as I was doing the research and looking through old newspapers on microfiche, there was no news story, very few news stories about it, like two uh, early on, two. Uh, so that people in the community, if they knew Donald Webb, they would not have known that he was wanted. I mean, that wouldn't happen today because it would be on Twitter and it would be on Facebook and it would be on whatever the next um, you know hot social media uh, platform there is. But then people relied on TV, radio, and local newspapers, and very few people looked on the you know the post office wall for the who's uh, wanted by the FBI. So most people. Right. Other than the circle that knew Donald Webb, most people had no idea who he was um, and that he was wanted. When I was a reporter, uh, some of the older reporters, um, you know, people who had been there much longer and who were native to the community, would talk about Donald Webb's stepson because he had been a New Bedford cop and he left the department under uh, some pressure. So people would talk about him and then in passing say, oh, yeah, and his, his stepfather uh, killed a cop. And no one really said flat out, and he's still out there and he's still wanted. So I wrongly assumed that uh, Donald Webb was either dead or he was in prison. I had no idea that he was still wanted. Wow. Because I, I would have done stories about it. Right, right. Um, okay. At what point in your research did you find out that this story had a connection to New Bedford, which is, of course, uh, this uh, you know a big part of the subject of your first book? Yep. Um, the very start. The very start, because uh, he was uh, eventually located in New Bedford, and I knew of the New Bedford ties. Uh, so I went backwards. I went knowing what was going on in New Bedford. Uh, and then going backwards and learning a, much more about who Chief Adams was, what was Saxonburg like, um, what was the toll that the, the murder took on the community, uh, what efforts uh, were being done to try and uh, find Donald Webb. That was very, very enlightening to me hmm. uh, to okay. go to, to Saxonburg, which is a, a lovely little community. It really is. It's very quaint. Everyone knows everyone. Uh, one person described uh, Saxonburg as it's Mayberry, USA. And before I went there and when I went there, that is exactly what it is. You, you definitely paint the picture of that idyllic community of Saxonburg. Um, and my next question was, who was Greg Adams? Because you introduce him right off the bat in your story and you get right to the story. I mean, it is, uh, I was joking around with Tim that I was listening to it on Audible and I made the mistake of listening to it at 1.3 speed and it was it was giving me anxiety because it, it, it you get right into it. It's riveting, yeah. And, and it doesn't slow down. Mm. Anyway, back to the point of my question. Can you tell us a little bit about Chief Adams? He was married. He had uh, two small children. Uh, he was someone who always did everything right. He went to church. He honored his parents. He would have dinner, Sunday dinner with them. He was a, very much a family man. In addition to working as a police chief, he also taught at the academy. He was a volunteer firefighter. So he was very much involved with the community. He was going to school. He got his uh, 
master's degree. He was then going to pursue a uh, law degree, but when his wife got pregnant, he said, well, I, it'll be too crazy. The household will be too crazy. So he, uh, he gave up his, his dream of becoming a lawyer, but he was uh, very, very dedicated to uh, Saxonburg and being the head of the police department, of which there was only two full-time officers on the department, um, the chief and um, another officer. Mm-hmm. Overall, good guy, straight and narrow, the complete opposite of Donald Webb, who was a low-level mobster who, you know, broke into buildings and, you know, ripped people off and robbed, once robbed a bank, um, you know, would scam people. It's... Mm. And he was pretty young, right? Yes, he was in his 30s, early 30s. Wow. Yeah, the the beginning of your book is is absolutely riveting. And, um, you know, hearing, hearing sort of some of the accounts of what Chief Adams went through um, when he died was just uh, heartbreaking, you know, talking about his kids and and he's not going to be able to see them and uh and that part really um grabbed me right right away and and, uh i felt awful for uh for chief adams and uh for all of the people that knew him who were because it's a small town the people who ran the ambulance were cops and firefighters and you know volunteers and they knew him and you know they were desperately trying to save him the the entire time and they had to live and relive those moments all these years, uh, partially because uh, they felt if the case came, when the, when the case came to trial, they'd have to testify. So, decade after decade, you know, they were keeping that memory alive in their head, which is very remarkable and um, and horrifying at the same time, because you could never put it beh- behind you if you ever can. But they, they had to yeah. always relive it. And I think the town constantly relived it every single year when the anniversary of his murder came up and there was no closure. Tell us about about what clues were left at the crime scene that sort of started the chase, I guess. The, one of the first things that they found was a driver, driver's license in the snow. Uh, and the driver's license was uh, had the name of the name Stanley Portis on it. And it had a Massachusetts address. The FBI agent in Pennsylvania uh, knew another, it was very close to another agent who was in New Bedford, Massachusetts. And he called him and said, you know, we have a police chief here who's murdered. It looks like it may be someone who's your way. He gives them the name and the agent then calls over to the Massachusetts State Police Unit that's assigned to the district attorney's office at the time and talks to the person in charge. And he gives the name and the person in charge tells him, oh, that's, um, I, you know who that is? That's, you know, the first husband of, the dead husband of Donald Webb's uh, wife. And sometimes he uses that alias. Now, unfortunately, the FBI didn't realize that that particular member of the state police knew Webb's wife and promptly called her. And it's kind of unclear exactly what he said, uh, but the bottom line is at that point, she knew that he was wanted for murder and that uh, a number of investigators said really set 
the case back in that very initial um, stage. They lost the uh, element of surprise. Wow, right, because Stanley Portis wasn't, wasn't even alive at that point. So now I guess some of this would be speculation, but if, if they, they called and told her, oh, oh we, found, we found this ID, like uh, they, maybe they didn't assume right away what happened, right? Uh, well, what it is is the, the person in the state police knew that Stanley Portis was dead because um, he knew the wife. The wife was a waitress at uh, a local restaurant. New Bedford is a, a small city, and uh, just about everyone knows everyone. There's always that third degree of separation. Um, and the, the person that was uh, lieutenant who was in charge of the, uh, of the unit personally knew Webb's wife. So when he called her and said, hey, they're looking for Donald. They found, you know, your, your, your okay. dead husband's uh, driver's license. And, you know, that's right. Donald must have left it someplace. You know, you can only assume right, okay. what the conversation was. Uh, right. He may have said, hey, but when you see him, please tell him to give us a call. And of course, she was no fool. She knew, oh, this is not good. And Something bad is right. going on, and it's uh, obviously her husband was not going to give the state police a call or the FBI a call. Right. So it was kind of common knowledge that um, Donald was using Stanley's identification. Yeah, he used a, a variety of different aliases, but uh, that one was very was used quite often. And without giving anything away for someone who wants to read the book, how does someone go about their day to day life with that being just common knowledge that this is the type of person you are. Um, it, it is. It's it's amazing. I don't. I couldn't do it. There are a number of people who can, which I find fascinating. But he was he was uh, kept hidden for you know for decades, um, and it's by his wife. I still can't get wrap my head around how no one turned him in. Part of me can understand why his wife didn't turn him in. But there must have been other people who saw him around. And there was a reward being offered. Uh, you would think someone would drop a dime, but no one did. How, how many times did that happen to you when you were researching for this book where you came upon like a, 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 just a baffling detail like that? Like, why is this happening like this? I mean, how emotionally invested did you get in this one? I was... Uh, quite emotionally invested, particularly with the, with, with uh, the people from Saxonburg, uh, because there are stories of how, you know, how horrendous the murder was and the toll it took on the community really, really resonated with me. And then when I'm looking at how uh, Donald Webb was able to get away for so long, uh, that really bothered me because I, I love the, the city of New Bedford. It is a lovely city. It really is. Um, you know, aside from the fact that there was a serial killer and aside from, from, from that, you know, it's, things happen. T name me a city that doesn't have a serial killer. Yes. <laughs> yes. There's, there's many that we don't even know about, but, but it, it, it really is. It's a city where there's a lot of very hardworking people and, uh, who will have your back, who will help you. Um, it, it's got on a beautiful coast. Uh, it's, I, I call it Massachusetts' best kept secret. And 
I think everyone in that area wants to keep it that way because once it's discovered, you know what happens of houses go up and, you know, everything gets ruined. The people who live there can't live there. But I, I was really quite surprised with this case that this, unlike the, the serial killings where there was a number of people they really wanted this case to be solved and they were puzzled why no one was coming forward. And it seemed that no one knew who the killer is. Well, in this case, they knew who the killer was and people just would, were refusing to say where he was. Um, there was a lot of false starts. At one point, they thought that he was in uh, gambling up in Canada, and there was sightings of him on vacation or, or on a cruise or, you know, in a variety of places. And uh, they all turned out to be not true. To this day, I'm still absolutely baffled uh, that he could have escaped justice for so long in a, in a community. Um, like uh, New Bedford. I still don't understand it. And I'm sure part of it had to do with that people just didn't know that he was wanted. The, the shocker was not seeing anything in newspapers. I was expecting to see, you know, these, you know, front page headlines, you know, most wanted, uh, maybe in New Bedford, maybe in, you know, in the area, nothing. Right. The first story I found was in the Fall River paper and it was an inside story. And it was very, very short. It was more of a rewrite of a press release than anything else. And I was just, you contrast that with the news that was in Pennsylvania, where it was day after day after day after day of, you know, uh, where's the killer? They're still looking here. They're looking there. And by that time, Donald Webb was way, way long gone. He was not even in Pennsylvania. He was up, up in Massachusetts. Do you think it was common knowledge that he was sort of involved in organized crime? You know, use the term organized crime loosely. There's organized crime, like the godfather, organized crime. And then you have the lower level organized crime members. And he was more of the lower level organized crime member. He was not the way up on the top calling the shots. He had his own little crew uh, yeah. who would, you know, break into to businesses and uh, break into jewelry stores uh, at night. Uh, and they were very, very successful. Uh, they were, you know, they were good at what they did. Uh, and they called, the police called them the Fall River Gang because most of the members were from Fall River. It's, you know, not a particularly unique name, but that's what they called them. <laughs> And was there a connection to the Providence Mafia as well, or the you know organized crime? Uh, for people who aren't familiar with the the geography here, uh, New Bedford and Fall River are on the uh, south coast of Massachusetts, and it's really closer to Providence and to, to Boston. So about forty, it's about forty minutes uh, from Providence, and they were tied to the. the Loosely tied to the Patriarcha family, you know, they hung out with some of the same same people. Not the you know people that were high up, but they they sort of touched uh, the Patriarcha family. Yeah, it's a pretty uh, significant crime family, right? Especially at that. Yes, time. it is. Yeah, yeah, it's come up in some of our Gardner heist uh, research. Yeah, <laughs> that's a fascinating case too. 
Yeah, it really is. Someone stealing this and not real, probably not realizing what you have, and it's could be buried someplace. And you know, that's that is just a truly bizarre case. When you uh, when you're writing a book on it, (laughs) oh, there's been so many books uh, written on that um, that are absolutely wonderful books. Uh, I probably won't. Okay, well, if you do, you, uh, you know, let us know. Oh, I definitely um, will. <laughs> and we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. And there's no chance that New Bedford Highway serial killer case is connected to Webb, right? You know what? It's funny. I, I thought the same thing. Oh, is that possible? Um, which gives you an idea of how, when you're looking at suspects, it could be anyone. Because I was thinking, and I, I, that was one of the first things I asked some investigators, could he have been the highway killer? And that would make sense in some ways because no one knew he was around. But some of the investigators said, no, he wasn't you know, violent. The, the killing of the chief was in some ways a bit an accident because they were struggling with a gun. Um, but who knows? You never leave anything out of the realm of possibility, which tells you how many suspects uh, there are out there as, uh, for the New Bedford Highway uh, serial killing and how that can be so haunting. And my brain is always going, could this be the person? Could that be the person? Uh, so it did cross my mind. And you had mentioned that the murder of Greg Adams probably was an accident because it was a struggle with the weapon. Can you break down, again, without giving away too much from the book, can you break down what did happen that morning? Yes. The chief had left uh, the courthouse where the uh, police station at that time uh, was housed. And he went out on parole, on, parole, on patrol. Uh, and soon after, it came over the radio that, that a police officer had been shot. Everyone in the community, all the law enforcement, rushed right to the scene. An alarm went out. Ambulance, which was a block and a half away at the fire station, they all jumped. Uh, one person jumped in there and went there. Someone else, a volunteer firefighter who was the closest, was first on the scene and began trying to, uh, to save him, save the chief. He was found in this way after he had stopped this vehicle. Uh, and the vehicle was pulled into the, uh, the parking lot. Uh, they believe that, and this is all speculation, of course, that uh, the chief took the guy's web's a fake license and was turning around and was going to the uh, to his vehicle to call it in. Now, at the time, Donald Webb was wanted for skipping bail on uh, some New York robberies, and he may have thought. I'm not going back to prison. And when the chief came back, something happened and there was a struggle and they were fighting. Uh, and the struggle and fight ended up behind some houses right next door to the parking lot. Um, and then Webb took off. The chief was lying wounded in the uh, back of one, of one of the houses and he was calling for help. And a young boy who was homesick heard a noise outside and then heard him, heard a voice calling help, help. And he got into 
told his mother. Eventually they went outside and they found the chief and they uh, called uh, the station. And then that set up the whole whole search at that point. It's a really harrowing moment in your book where you're describing them taking him to the hospital, going up to 80 miles an hour on icy roads and realizing at that moment that the ambulance they were in was pretty much, I think it was described as like a mobile Band-Aid where it didn't have, yeah, it didn't have any real equipment for life-saving on it. Um, Do you think that if, without placing, I'm not trying to place any blame on anybody, but do you think if this was a a more equipped um, department that, he would have survived? I think if it happened today. Yeah, that's probably a better way to put it. Yeah. If it had happened today, he may have survived. If it happened today, uh, Webb would have been caught much sooner because of social media and because of surveillance and a whole variety of other things. Because remember, in 1980, it was a whole different world when it came to law enforcement. Most departments didn't even have computers. And that's the, the one thing troubling thing about the whole stop itself. For a lot of departments, you know, today, if you get stopped, it's a couple of keystrokes by the cops in the, the cruiser, they call up your license, any warrants, tickets, are you really, is your license really good? Um, back then, some of the smaller uh, departments, when they would stop someone, they would have to call, radio it in, And sometimes a dispatcher would then have to physically call someone else to look up the information. And sometimes that just wasn't done. So there was a good chance that Donald Webb panicked, not knowing the whole procedure. And if he had just stayed cool, there's a good chance he could have just gone off on his merry way and the chief would have been alive. Oh, that's tragic. That is. That really is tragic. So tell us about how the police went about trying to track Donald Webb. They went to first all of his friends, uh, his wife. They staked out his wife's house. They watched her very, very carefully. And they described it as very often she would um, take elusive measures when she was driving. And they were quite impressed with her driving ability. Uh, and the measures that she took. Uh, when she would leave her her driveway, pull out of the garage, they, or pull into her garage, the garage door would go down immediately. When she went out, she was already in the car and would pull out. They followed her quite often, uh, especially in those early days. Uh, they had electronic surveillance cameras trained on her home. They did just about everything that they could but they never caught sight at all of Donald Webb or any indication of where he was or if he was in her home. They talked to the neighbors. Um, They would set up surveillance around the area to see if they could catch a glimpse of, of him. And there was a good chance during part of that really heavy surveillance, he wasn't even in the, at the home or even in the city that he was, he was nearby, but it was not there. And they believed that he was coming and going uh, because there were sightings or possible sightings of him in, uh, again, in Pennsylvania, New York, and some other areas, including Canada. So they were and following you, up on all of these different things. 
you had said that he had made the um, FBI's most wanted list. How soon after the murder had that happened? Within a year. Oh, so pretty, pretty quick. Oh, pretty quickly. Yeah, pretty quickly. And I take it the way he moved around sort of ghost-like, I guess, is, is why you titled the book The Ghost? I, I titled the book The Ghost for two, two different reasons. The town of Saxonburg had been really haunted by the memory of Greg Adams. So he was sort of the ghost in the community. And also his killer, Donald Webb, was dubbed the ghost by law enforcement because he just seemed to vanish. Uh, they would get word that he would be here and they go there and he's gone. Um, you know, at one point they thought they got word that he was going to be at a party, a New Year's Eve party, and they're watching and watching. And they had really good uh, intelligence on it. And because there was certain, certain other things that happened uh, and they missed him, he got away. If this was the same time, he rolled out of the car, if that's to be believed? Yeah, they had, they were on, there was a party, on, it was supposed to be a party on Cape Cod, a New Year's Eve party, uh, where met, uh, some folks from Providence were going to be there. And it was at a hotel. The uh, state police and some members of the FBI, they had rooms all around there. So they were watching this area very, very closely. And they were waiting for him to show up. And he was supposed to be there with a certain person. And they saw a vehicle pull up uh, and they thought that they saw Donald Webb in there and they're waiting. And a local cruiser went by and it spooked the driver. And they went around the back. And when the car came back out, there was only one person in the car. And they later were told that Webb was in the car and he rolled out of the vehicle and took off. Now, whether that's true or not, that's a story they were told. So it was, there's, there were a lot of cases where it was like almost, they almost got him. Um, and he was just very, very lucky. So, and so, so many times, very, very, very lucky. And you have uh, visited the town of Saxonburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, you said that it was um, Mayberry-like, I believe you said. Have you spoken with um, members of Adam's family, his sons or anybody surviving? Yes, I, I've uh, interviewed his his widow for the book. And, you know, the, the death of, of her, her husband really just changed the whole trajectory of her life. You know, she was a young mother. Um, she had a certain vision of how her life was going to be. And then, you know, within hours, it, that, all that changed and she becomes a widow with two young children. Um, and, and, and these boys really never knew their father. Uh, the oldest was, you know, just a toddler. So his memories of his father are very hazy. And the youngest was an infant. So he has no memory of his father, which is really just heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. And, you know, here she is forced now to come to terms with her husband being dead and raising her boys and trying to, to find work um, and, and survive while still, you know, dealing with uh, this absolute tragedy. She was a really strong, strong, lovely woman who 
deserved answers in 1980 and 81, uh, not so many years later. She's tough and she's, she is a, very much a survivor. To the credit of everyone in Saxonburg, they never forgot the chief. Every year uh, there would be a ceremony on the day of his uh, murder where they would lay a wreath on uh, a, a memorial that they have in front of the police department. They have renamed the street that he was uh, killed on in his honor. They, they, they have not forgotten him. Um, and when we were there after the book came out, uh, the stories that people would tell of the chief were really heartwarming. And to the people in Saxonburg, it's like this just happened yesterday. And it, it, it's truly, truly sad. It, it really was. And it, it was heartbreaking because it, it touched so many people from law enforcement to the judges, to cops, to people on the street. They all knew him and were touched by him. And for a murder like this to happen in a quiet community like Saxonburg was just unthinkable because this is a community where you, know, you could imagine people not locking their doors. This is the type of town it is. They are, um, someone described it as, this is uh, in Saxonburg, they have a, a parade for a parade. They are always celebrating something. Um, and so it's, it's very community oriented. And so the chief is, is just the ex exact opposite of who Donald Webb was. Right. Yeah. And how the heck did Webb move, move around and, and stay uh, uncaught, I guess, for so long? Clearly he had help. No one would admit to helping him, but clearly he had help. And, you know, clearly his, his wife knew where he was. Uh, she was under no obligation to tell the police where, she, where he was under Massachusetts law. Uh, so there was never any doubt amongst the investigators that she knew where he was. Uh, but she was not talking at all. Oh. She was very, very loyal to him. And, and that's something that he had noted when he was in prison in Massachusetts early on. Uh, that she was very, very loyal. And um, she was probably the, admitted that she was the best thing that ever happened to him in his life. Uh, and she was you know, so loyal to him and she, he didn't quite understand it. Huh. Can you explain a little bit more what you mean when you say she was under no obligation by Massachusetts law to reveal where her husband was? Yeah, because, uh, because, of the, uh, because they were married and spousal privilege. Spousal privilege? That is mind-blowing to me that this guy could be on the FBI's top 10 most dangerous, like most wanted list. And, and you're, you're married to somebody and you're like, yeah, that, that, that supersedes the FBI. Yeah. Wow. But, you know, but however, if she lied to the FBI, uh, they could, she could be charged with lying to the FBI. Oh, so it's, it's like, just don't say anything. Don't say anything. See, this is a thing with the FBI. You always have to tell them the truth. That is the trap door with the FBI. You lie to the FBI and you can wind up in prison or you get charged for lying to the FBI. I bet I could get away with it. <laughs> Never lie to the FBI. 
Good advice. Right. If you're ever in the position <laughs> where you are considering lying to the FBI. Do not do it. Do not under do no it. Yeah. circumstances. Okay. I'm, I'm making notes here. Sometimes they charge. Sometimes they don't. Uh, you know, it depends on the circumstances. Uh, in this case, she was not charged with lying to the FBI. But, you know, that, that's, that's the discretion that they could have. I guess when you come right down to, like, the letter of the law, technically she was not lying to the FBI. Well. Uh, maybe. A little bit. Uh, it's, a, it's a fine line there. Okay. <laughs> it's a very fine line. But they would say she, she wasn't cooperating with them, that's for sure. Either way, like, the guy totally lucked out with her. Yes, he did. He did. He, he really did. Um, and, you know, she is a very strong woman also. Because when her first husband died, she had a small child, she had an infant. And during that period of time in the 1950s, things were very different for women than how they are today. So for her to have uh, prevailed on her own as a single mother is really shows some of her inner strength. You have to yeah. look at all of it in the lens of the times too. Right. Yeah. You know, and you yeah. do wonder if she had never met Donald Webb, how her life might have been different. Right. So Greg Adams' widow married. She filed a uh, a lawsuit later. Yeah, she did. As they were trying to uh, force the uh, Webb's wife's uh, hand in this, uh, she filed a civil suit to uh, uh, force Mrs. Webb to cooperate. That, that's what it was seen as. Uh, and that they were going to attach all of her money and her property and all of that. So that, that, that helped to bring some the, a closure to the case, which was uh, interesting, <laughs> an interesting ending. And I won't talk yeah. about the ending because it is truly bizarre. Yeah. To say the least. Okay, cool. Yeah, we won't uh, we won't go too much further there. But you will agree that is yeah. the the strangest ending to a case ever. It's extremely bizarre. We're not so much in your, I guess, investigative journalistic shoes, but we do experience a lot of true crime. Obviously, that's what we do in this podcast biz. But pretty rare you get something that's uh, it's on it's on par with with the most bizarre. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it is a sort of like, oh, really? <laughs> it's a strange one, and that's why I wrote the book. My only remaining question for you is, what are you working on now? What case are you diving into? What can we look forward to um, coming next? I'm working on three different projects. One of them is almost done. Uh, it is uh, Pennsylvania-based, and it involves the uh, disappearance of a, a teenage girl, in 19, 1965. And it is a case where authorities believe they know they knew who the killer was because they believed that she was dead. They, but they did not have a body and they didn't have enough evidence to charge the person. And it wasn't until 1987 that uh, they got a tip which led to the unraveling of the case and eventually a, a conviction. But it's so that's the next one. And then I've got I'm working on two other ones. One is a historic murder set in, in um, New Hampshire. 
and a another uh, story about a um, convicted sex offender who abducted a teenager and killed her. And uh, do you have any upcoming um, events? I know you're uh, you're busy out there with book signings and uh, and things like that. I do. I have uh, two events in May. Uh, one is a virtual event on May 10th through the Franklin, uh, Massachusetts Library. And there is another event on May 24th at the Warwick, Rhode Island uh, Library at 2 p.m. And I if kinda... anyone wants to reach out to me, they can reach me through uh, Twitter, Instagram, or on my Facebook page, Maureen Boyle Writer. And I do have just one more quick question. You the you're the a conversation with you is so calming. You're you are such a calming presence. <laughs> but your books, your books are like like so intense. I, and it's hard for me to say like this is the same person who wrote like the opening scene of the ghost. Uh is there like a place that you go to mentally, like emotionally when you do you just like lock in? Are you do you how do you how do you get that out? It is I do have to put it in a different spot in my head because I always have to remember this isn't my life. I'm telling the stories of other people and I have to, uh, to tell that story. I do have to maintain some mental distance so that you don't freeze. That you, you get so overwhelmed that you can't tell the story hmm. you know, that you get so anxiety ridden because I'm telling the story. I didn't live the story. Uh, so I get close enough in the story where you sort of feel the heat. It was a discussion I had many, many years ago with um, some colleagues, a newspaper I was working at in New Hampshire. We were talking about covering crime. And it was, especially when you're dealing with victims, that to tell the story properly, you get, it's like touching a flame and you get really close enough where you can feel the heat of it but you can't get so, so close that you get burned uh, because then you can't tell the story. That's how, how I do it. Um, and keep on getting as much detail uh, from the victims and from the witnesses and work as best as I can to tell their story because it's their story, not my story. It's just the conduit to the telling. And, and hopefully I do it do them justice.